This morning I'll be reading from Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am, not, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You know, I think you are fortunate the sun has moved a little bit so it won't reflect off my head. <laughs> I identified with Brian a while ago in that remark he made. I had a coworker several years ago who used to come up behind me and rub my head with his hand. And my mother-in-law was determined that I would grow hair. So she sent this oil she insisted my wife put on my head every day. She put it on one day, I went to work, the co-worker came up behind me, rubbed that oily head, and he never touched my head again. So. <laughs> Perhaps you remember Paul Harvey, the noted news commentator. Do you remember his radio program called The Rest of the Story? He would tell some historical incident or well-known story, and then he would add obscure, little-known facts, really enrich the story a lot, and he would conclude by saying, now you know the rest of the story. Well, we read Acts 21 a moment ago about Agabus' warning to Paul. And it kind of became a, a Paul Harvey sort of moment. What is the rest of the story? What happened to Paul? Well, a less determined man than Paul would probably have reconsidered his trip to Jerusalem in light of that warning. But Paul had in his possession an offering that he was taking from Gentile Christians to the impoverished Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And nothing was going to stop him from delivering that offering. He had worked too hard to gather it. The Macedonian Christians had given generously, graciously, because he said they first gave themselves to the Lord. They were under severe financial hardships themselves. The Corinthian Christians, who had far more than the Macedonians, were more tight-fisted, took more encouragement for them to give. So Paul spent three months in Corinth, presumably gathering that offering. Some scholars think that that three-month period fell between December of 56 AD and March of 57 AD. While he was at Corinth, 
he wrote his letter to the Roman church. And in chapter 15, he told the Roman Christians what he was doing and that he was en route to Jerusalem with an offering. He and some others conveyed that offering from Corinth en route to Jerusalem. They stopped at Caesarea. And the story from Acts 21 took place at Caesarea. Following the warning, he continued on to Jerusalem and he was arrested. And we know from a variety of sources that his arrest there actually started a period of imprisonment that lasted about five years. He spent some time in Jerusalem under arrest and then under heavy guard he was moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea where he spent two years in prison. While there he had an opportunity to make a powerful presentation of the gospel to senior government officials. He thought they were going to send him back to Jerusalem for trial there, which would have been a hostile environment for him. So, acting on that belief, he appealed for his trial to be before Caesar in Rome. En route to Rome, he experienced shipwreck and snakebite. And upon reaching Rome, he entered into another period of imprisonment that lasted about two years before he was released. Now that summary overview gives you a little bit of background that is helpful to understand the significance of a subtlety in the letter he wrote to the Romans. Remember the time frame, December 56, March 57 AD. Sometime in that period was when he wrote Romans. In his letter to the Romans, in Romans 8:28, he said, and I'm going to read now from the Living Bible version of that, which is a paraphrase, and we know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. He said that in that December to March time frame. He was arrested in late May of 57 AD. Mere months mere months after he had penned Romans 8.28. So the question comes, did he really believe Romans 8.28? You know, his circumstances changed tremendously in that short period of time. It's one thing to quote Romans 8.28 when everything's going well, or even to write it. But did he really believe it? Do you believe it? 
But fortunately, we don't have to guess how Paul compared his circumstances to Romans 8.28 because he wrote his friends at Philippi and told them how he compared the two. So in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, here's what he says about his imprisonment. I want you to know, my friends, that the things that have happened to me have really helped the progress of the gospel. As a result, the whole palace guard and all the others here know that I am in prison because I am a servant of Christ. And my being in prison has given most of the believers more confidence in the Lord so that they grow bolder all the time to preach the message fearlessly. Now, let's go back to Acts 21. We're part of that assembly that's trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He goes anyway. Word filters back to us. He's arrested. They've got him in Rome now. Now, if we were the typical group, we would probably say, you know, he should have listened to us. We told him what was good for him, and now look. They thought probably that God had abandoned Paul because he had fallen on what seemed to be such hard times. But the thing that really jumps out of this Philippian passage is that's not how Paul viewed it at all. He looked at his circumstance. He surveyed everything going on. And he seemingly took the attitude, well, looky here. What have I gotten myself into? How can I cooperate with God to make something good come out of it. That seems to have been his attitude. He didn't cry over his arrest. He didn't lament day in and day out about what could have been or should have been or might have been. He just simply took life as it occurred and seemingly, seemingly put it in a positive perspective. You know, in addition to the positives that he mentioned in his letter to the Philippians, he had time to think, pray, reflect, and write. And so, from his imprisonment, house imprisonment in Rome, he began to write. And he wrote perhaps as many as five of the letters we now have in our New Testament while he was in prison at Rome. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and possibly Galatians. Wow. Five precious books that might never have come into being if that busy missionary had not been forced to slow down, to think, in given time, 
to write. He seemingly didn't ask, why has this happened? He seemingly said, how can I cooperate with God and make something good come out of it? All that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into His plans. Is that what we think when life caves in? When things turn sour, do we turn to Romans 8, 28 and say, well now, how can I cooperate with God and convert this to good and move on? Or do we plant our memory in our life right there in that incident? Paul said, everything that happens to us can be used by God for our good. Now, folks, that's a pretty inclusive statement. There are no ifs, ands, buts, no exceptions, and a lot happens to us. But is it a credible statement? Well, the thing that makes it credible to me is who wrote it. Paul had been jailed, stoned, beaten, snake-bitten, forsaken by friends, shipwrecked. And in spite of all of that, he still clung absolutely to Romans 8.28. Yes, it's credible. Yes, I think he believed it with all of his heart and soul. He believed it. It was Burns who said, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. We know that, don't we? Our own lives testify to that. Best laid plans. When life becomes death, when health becomes illness, when togetherness becomes separateness, when the routine becomes the unexpected, when we sit amidst the ashes, debris, brokenness, and tragedies of life, we don't deny the reality of what has happened, but we are prone to deny that it can be used by God for our good, aren't we? You see, when life is turned upside down like a pineapple cake, it's hard to see it right side up, isn't it? Very hard to see it right side up. You remember the story of the phoenix? That beautiful bird that lived alone in the Arabian desert for five to six hundred years. And then one day it consumed itself with fire, only to emerge from the fire a more beautiful bird than it had been before. And therein is the heart of our problem, and we do have a problem with Romans 8:28. We generally think that ashes can give birth to new life only in mythology. 
we generally fail to really commit ourselves to the idea that God can take tragedy, can take brokenness, and give back wholeness. We quote it, Romans 8, 28. But are we committed to it? Or do we linger amidst yesterday? Amidst the brokenness? Amidst the pain? You know, Job had that difficulty in the Old Testament. Job had family and friends and lost them. He had wealth and health, and he lost that too. Job was sitting one day on a pile of broken pottery, scratching himself, and he asked God to just kill him, get him out of the way. Job couldn't see that there was anything as meaningful in his future as what he'd lost in his past. He couldn't see new relationships. He couldn't see new value. He couldn't see new dreams. It was all what had happened to him. And then you come to the very last chapter of the book of Job. Chapter 42, verses 2 and 3. There's a different Job there. He's more humble. He's contrite. And he says, You ask who it is who has so foolishly denied your providence? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about and did not understand. And he concluded, things that were far too wonderful for me to see. And all tenderness That's where we are. If we fail to believe that God can take pain, unbelievable pain, that God can take the pieces of a shattered life and put them back together again. If we fail to believe that God can take all of the brokenness and hurt in our life and give us back something meaningful and beautiful that gives hope and direction. And we're talking about something we don't understand. Something we can't begin to comprehend. Exactly where Job was. Because it is God's everlasting promise that that is exactly what he will do exactly what he'll do. A pastor visited a widow, a new widow, and she said to him, my husband has been killed. My two children are left fatherless. And for me, life stretches on in infinite loneliness. Surely, she said, God's will for my life was home and marital happiness. And now his will is defeated for me forever. 
And the pastor replied with words to this effect. Are you certain, standing where you do, with the limited future vision that you have, that God's will for your life cannot be achieved apart from that one man? The woman's reaction to her loss was logical, wasn't it? Something had surprised and interrupted her plans. But though her decision was logically correct, it was theologically incorrect because it is God's promise that he will take brokenness and convert it to wholeness. But we've got to work with him. We've got to give it to him. Do you believe God can do all he wills to do? Think about it now. Don't just be glib about it. Think about it. Do you believe God can do all he wills to do? I do. I believe God can do all he wills to do. But I also believe that God will not do all he can do. For instance, God will seldom intrude by force on our wills. He allows us, so to speak, to chart our path. He won't intrude by force on our wills most of the time. So if we choose to brood forlornly over the ashes of our tragedies, if we choose to erect monuments of eternal mourning over our heartaches, we will handicap God in his effort to convert our misfortune into good fortune. We've got to work with God if we want that to happen. Now, a lot of you can probably remember Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations. Probably studied it somewhere in the 10th grade. My wife used to teach that every year to sophomores. Well, in Great Expectations, Miss Havisham, on her wedding day, has her wedding gown on. The cake is ready. Everything's ready except the groom. He doesn't show up. And so, in her pain and disappointment, Miss Havisham retreats to the darkness of her home. The wedding dress becomes her daily mode of attire. The cake remains on the table, never to be cut. It's as if Miss Havisham's life stopped in that moment of pain, and she was not able to move beyond it. Oh, she still functioned in a limited kind of way, but her tortured mind could never move beyond that moment. Now, please listen to me in kindness now. There are a lot of people like Miss Havisham. 
people who cannot really discover what their future could be because they will not let go of their past. The quality of life tomorrow, whether your life or my life or anybody's life, the quality of life tomorrow is always shaped by the extent to which we let go of yesterday by giving it to God. That is absolutely the essential thing to do. Mark chapter 9 contains a story of a man who had a very desperately ill son, and he comes to Jesus so that Jesus might heal the boy. And he says to Jesus, do something if you can. I love that exchange because you can almost hear the humor in Jesus' voice as he responds to the man, if I can, you know, what kind of deal is this? And Jesus said, anything's possible if you have faith. To which the man very earnestly responds, I do have faith. Oh, I do have faith, but help me to have more. You have faith. I have faith. But we probably need more faith than we have before we're completely, faithfully willing to give to God all the brokenness, the pieces, the hurt, the pain, the things we don't talk to anybody about and expect God to give back new meaning, new relationships, new direction, new dreams. It takes a lot of faith to do that. A faith that we have to cultivate and develop to the point that we come to understand that the issue is never God's willingness to do that or His power to do that. He's not lacking in either willingness or power to do that, to bring healing to us. He wants that. The issue is always our willingness to let him do it by giving it to him. And you know what's the surest evidence of our unwillingness to give it to him? That we pray about it day after day after day after day after day. That it just eats into our gut and doesn't let us go that we ask people and continue to ask people to pray that we might be released from this. We don't have to grovel before God. We don't have to beg God and beg God and beg God for what He wants to give us. Wholeness and peace and inward tranquility and happiness. Ask God to take the pain away and turn your back on it. We've all had the occasion to have wounds, sometimes rather severe wounds, 
And when you take the bandage off every day and you probe around in it to see if it's healing, guess what? It's not healing. We keep tearing it open. It's the same way with our mind and with our heart. Let God do what God wants to do. Give it to him and forget about it. It takes faith to do that. A lot of faith. During the anti-slavery movement in the 19th century, things were not going well for the movement. And Frederick Douglass, the eloquent fugitive slave, was really disappointed that they were having so many setbacks. One night he was addressing a rally and his disappointment was evident in what he was saying. Well, present that evening was an aged lady, Sojourner Truth, who was herself a very powerful figure in the anti-slavery movement. And she had heard all the gloom and doom and despair she wanted to hear from Douglas. So she stood up and she said, Frederick, Frederick, is God dead? Well, it stunned him at first. And he gathered himself and he thundered back. No, God is not dead. God was not dead in Moses' day. God was not dead in Gideon's day. And God is not dead in our day. And then he concluded, Blessed are those to whom is given the vision to tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible. Blessed indeed are those folks who can see God when he's most invisible amidst all that's happening around them, they feel his presence, sense his compassion. But it's true. Therefore, because it's true, we can confidently say, when shadows fall, God is there. When jobs are lost, God is there. When tragedy occurs, God is there. When illness stalks us, God is there. When a spouse leaves us, God is there. When a child sits in the midst of a broken home, having to choose between this parent or that parent, God is there. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In all of life's circumstances, God is there. He never leaves us alone. He never leaves us to carry our pain and brokenness alone. God is always there. 
He's just patiently, lovingly waiting for us to claim the promise and the peace of Romans 8.28, just as Paul did. Believing, absolutely believing, not just saying, but believing that everything that happens to us works together for our good if we love God and are following His purpose in our life. Whatever else you take away from here today, take away this thought. God doesn't want you to carry any pain, brokenness, and hurt. He wants to do that for you. May we pray. Father, it's so hard to believe what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. It's so hard for us to let go of things that we have such deep hurt about that we don't even talk about. Help us today in your presence, help us today to just give you everything that keeps us from being the people, the happy, contented people you want us to be. Help us to give you our pain and hurt and brokenness and leave it right here in this sanctuary right now and unfold to us the future that you want for us, that you have for us. Whether it's new relationships, new dreams, new jobs, Father, we claim the promise that wholeness will be given back as we give you the pieces. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.